Hello, I'm Chris and this is the Northern Guide to Happiness. Welcome to episode 26. As always, we're here in the virtual studio and I'm here with Alex and Kath. Hello. Hi there. Hello. How, how are we managing the transition into November and what feels like eternal darkness? Oh, uh, that's, no, that's not so good. <laughs> it's not so good, is it? No. Alex, you're sh- kind of shaking your head. It creeps up on us every year. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a surprise. <laughs> It just plays havoc with my running because, uh, you know, I, I tend to sort of go for a run after work. But of course, mm. I finish work at four or five o'clock whenever. And uh, yeah, it's uh, dark already. So it's hard. It's hard to program it all in. You're not one of these runners that kind of dresses up like a Christmas tree with all sorts of neon and kind of flashing <laughs> LEDs and goes out like black little no. illuminations. <laughs> Maybe I should. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I got a bit of a heads up from someone that I know um, because mm-hmm. he, we have a we have a meeting every Monday, a virtual meeting every Monday morning, and uh, he'd been out and had to put his head torch on at six thirty in the morning. Mm, okay. And I thought, oh no, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just chuckled at the idea of the head torch i'll have to try it and see what whether it's a good idea yeah absolutely santi could bring me one for christmas couldn't he yeah. good uh, yeah I need to get your lists together mm-hmm. alex anything you, you you want for christmas oh i'm in desperate need of some uh, roller derby knee pads and, and wrist guards the fun never stops in my house <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're held together by tape you know duct tape at the moment <laughs> so uh yeah, I need some new uh, some new protection for my roller derby. I'm off to practice tonight, so it's, it's nice to be back. Oh, yes. okay. Yes. Yeah, excellent. All right, well, I'm just back off a week's holiday. And my brain has kind of reset into kind of standby mode. So I'm not quite sure whether my brain's going to hold together for this episode, so we'll just see how we get on. Um, but it was a very nice holiday. Come on, you can do it, Chris. Oh, come on, yeah. Yeah, it was a very good holiday. It was very local. We went to Middleton in Teesdale. And it rained and it rained and it rained. But that didn't matter because we were in the most amazing accommodation. It was it was a converted um, Wesleyan chapel right in the heart of heart of the village, and just massive. And there was twelve of us. It was quite a lot, but um, you know there was open plan everything, and <sighs> cinema and snooker table and all sorts of stuff. So even though it was raining, there's still tons to do. So. Yeah, heartily recommend. Oh, sounds fabulous. Oh, oh yes. Very good. Yes, that brings back memories of doing things like that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Walks down to high force and low force. And oh, gosh. Beautiful part of the countryside. It is, it is. So anyway, uh, we are here for the Northern Guide to Happiness. Um, shall I introduce our guest for today? Yes, please. All oh, right. Okay, well, I had the pleasure of speaking to um, Professor Alison Stenning of Newcastle University. And we had a lovely conversation about place and places that mean things to us and that make us happy. Uh, But more importantly, we talked about neighbourhoods and streets and why playing out is important. So this is my conversation with Alison. So a very warm welcome to the Northern Guide to Happiness, Professor Alison Stenning. How are you? Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, this, 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 this is take two, isn't it? Because we, we, we tried this a little bit earlier in the week, um, but uh, had to sort of call for uh, sort of for various kind of reasons of uh, enormous building work, I think, happening in your yeah, office. And paradoxically, it did stop as soon as we stopped the call. But, uh... Well, you know, you know, if we had kept going, it would have, they would have kept going. They would have known psychically that... Uh, that you were trying to record something. So, but anyway, here here we are. We're both in our respective abodes rather than you being in Newcastle and me in in, in Bristol. Um, last time we started, we had a quite a nice conversation about um, sort of autumn um, because it really is kind of starting to look properly autumn out there. Um, and yeah. we were talking a bit about sort of our, our, our favourite seasons. Is autumn one of your favourite seasons? Um, I, I don't know. I suppose, yeah, you know, as we'll talk about later, I mean, one of my big things is kind of being outdoors and particularly playing outdoors. And there's always that sense mm. that, you know, the, the weather has to be good to play outside and I think you know that I think playing outside all year round and being outside all year round and doing you know walking and cycling and all of that you get you I think you you value the like the best bits of all of them you know and I think you, mm-hmm. it's really I, I mean I'm loving autumn at the moment this morning when I walked back from um, dropping my daughter off at school the moon was still out um, oh, and yeah. the sky was just stunning and it, you know the, these kind of sort of crisp kind of 
beautiful autumn days as the leaves are turning are amazing. Um, I say, I, I guess probably winter's my, my, unless it snows, winter's my mm. kind of least favourite, that kind of yeah. grey, grim, kind of wet day. Um, but I love spring. I, like, I'm a gardener as well, so I love spring and I love, you know, everything emerging in spring. Um, snowdrops kind of like as the first thing. I just, yeah, there's something about spring that's kind of, I think that's starting again. It's just, is, is amazing. And obviously summer's good. Yes. So, yeah, I'm with you on spring. I always kind of feel like kind of hope emerging. Uh, in springtime with all the uh, all the all the plants coming up so it's a really lovely feeling yeah um yeah i mean the, the, this whole thing about getting outside um and the weather having to be right for it actually we, we don't do too badly for for weather here i think um because i think you cycle don't you a lot, yeah. and a lot of people when they talk to me about cycling say well the weather's not really good enough for cycling in, in, in newcastle but it's it's not that bad actually is it in terms of no. the number of days of really horrible rain yeah i mean i think you know i think you know it, it's it's northern so it's colder i guess <laughs> than some places and um, my mom moved up here but never really settled because it was just too cold for her um mm. but um yeah i mean i think you're right it, weirdly like earlier in the week the two days that i commute were kind of forecast to be very wet and in fact both my commutes were dry and they were stunningly beautiful and i think that's it so you know we can have I mean, we've had a bit of rain today but it doesn't last long and you know actually yeah, I think you're right. I think we, we do better than we think we do. Yeah. Um, you better introduce yourself. Um, so uh, who, who who are you and what do you do? So my name's Alison Stenning. I kind of wear lots of hats that blur mm. at different times. Um, so I live in North Shields in North Tyneside. I'm a mother to a 10-year-old daughter um, and I'm an academic geographer. So I work at Newcastle University um, in geography there and I have done since 2003. Um, previously was in Birmingham for um, a good period of time and sort of travelled around a bit doing research and field work and things. Um, and I'm a social geographer primarily, so I'm really interested in kind of everyday geographies and mm. the places around us and the places that we connect with kind of day in, day out and what they mean to us and how they come to mean those things to us. Um, and the kind of, at the moment, a lot of my focus is on yeah, play on streets and play in general and kind of particularly in cities. And that leads yeah. in then to kind of, yeah, my sort of activist work um, in promoting and developing play streets in North Tyneside through Play Meet Street North Tyneside. Excellent. Well, that's that's something I really want to get into later. That was one of the uh, the main reasons for, for contacting you in the first place was about play streets. But just sort of rewinding a little bit back to the um, the geography bit of it, which I have to ask about, not uh, probably in a bit of a nerdy way, because uh, I did geography as my, my degree back in the, uh, gosh, back in the mid-1990s now. Um, the geography side of things, um, what brought you into that? How, was there a conscious decision at one point that actually geography is the thing that I want to do or did it just sort of emerge over a, a period of time? I don't, weirdly, it was one of the subjects, where, you know, when you make your GCSE choices. So I was kind mm. of first year of GCSEs in whatever that would have been, 1988, I think. Um, and, you know, you, you have you often have these kind of weird sort of options between this or that. And I remember yeah. I had to choose between German and geography. And uh, <laughs> I just, I'd just taken up, yeah, I don't know whether it was alphabetical, whether that was the rationale, <laughs> but I just started German and I was quite enjoying it. And right. up until the very last minute, I was going to choose German over geography. But I think I did really well in, uh, like, must have been kind of my exams just before we had to confirm our choices or something. And right. so I opted for geography. Um, and I don't think it was just because I did, but I mean, I, you know, I was kind of like on the, on the, on the, what's the word? on the fence, you know, trying to kind of work mm. out one way or the other. So I opted for geography, and I don't know. I think it it then just did kind of capture my imagination. I mean, I think it always had done, but I think you mm. know. Um, and weirdly, my brother is also a geographer, um, uh, and I don't know. So I don't know whether it was something about kind of art. We moved around a lot, I think, you know, as children, mm. and I don't know, you know, consciously. Obviously, that wasn't really a part of kind of my thought process, but I guess, you know, there was. Yeah, perhaps a bit of that. And then I just kind of sort of, yeah, it, it really captured my imagination. And then, then through A-level, um, you know, I just, I remember kind of having arguments with my teacher who thought that some of the subjects on the curriculum were really dull. And I was like, I think there was one about industrial geography, which I later yeah. ended up spending quite a lot of time thinking about. And she was like, oh, well, I just have to teach this. And I'm going, but it's great. It's, just, <laughs> it's so fascinating. Um, so you're and motivating think, the teacher. Wow, <laughs> I'm a... not sure it worked. but uh, <laughs> um, And I think that's, and, you know, and I think just, I just, yeah, I kind of, I've always been a human geographer. Um, mm. I mean, I kind of, you know, we, I've always had to study bits of physical geography, but it, that's never really been the thing that kind of captured my imagination. And so I, I don't know, I suppose it was, yeah, it was my orientation to the world and just kind of thinking about, I've always, 
yeah, just been kind of curious about places and not necessarily, you know, in terms of kind of travel and exotic places, but just kind of mm. the places we live and the places we move through and um, what they feel like and, you know, what happens in them. Um, and yeah, and that sort of uh, kind of looking out, I suppose, I've always just been kind of very curious about the world and, you know, walking around it and kind of, you know, watching out of car windows and that kind mm. of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you sort of mentioned the, the way we feel about spaces, because when I was sort of doing a bit of um, digging into to your background before we spoke, so having a look at your page on the um, the Newcastle um, University website, you're, under your research interests, one of the things that you list there is is emotional geographies. And that really kind of made me think, because um, I think well, lots of people have done geography, but for geography, for, for, for those people, geography is probably about maps and biomes and natural disasters and uh, urban development, all that sort of stuff. Emotions, not so much. So how, how do those two things work together? What, what, what are geographies of emotion or emotional geographies? Well, I mean, it's, I think probably, I was gonna say like a relatively recent development, like last 20-ish years or so, I suppose. But I think, you know, even just those examples that you talked about, kind of like, you know, biomes and urban development, I mean, they feel different, those kinds of, you know, different kinds of, you know, ecological environments, different kinds mm. of urban environments, you know, we, we have, you know, very strong feelings about, you know, whether or not there are new roads built through our neighbourhoods or new housing developments, um, or how the council treats us when they plan to kind of, you know, develop, you know, new parts of the city or whatever, or redevelop and knock bits down and stuff. So I suppose all, you know, it's all about that. It's all about the fact that actually these aren't just kind of, they're not just places on a map. They're you know, whether they're kind of physical um, environments or kind of human environments, they're environments that make us, you know, that they, they we connect to in different ways, that we feel mm. something kind of in those places. And so some of it's just about kind of sort of recognising and acknowledging and, and thinking about kind of some of that. And, you know, there's lots of debates, obviously, at the moment around kind of safe spaces and the kinds of spaces that make us feel safe or unsafe. And mm. some of the kind of later work in emotional geographies very much came out of feminist geography, which was looking particularly at the way in which women felt in particular public places and, and so on. So mm. a lot of it came out of that kind of sort of feminist geography kind of strand. Um, so there's a lot about, you know, thinking about and kind of documenting and reflecting on how different groups of people feel in different places. Um, and that, I think there's often a kind of auto-ethnographic kind of element to that, you know, about the researcher and why they've come to this kind of stuff. But it's also then thinking about, um, you know, the ways in which emotions are kind of used to construct places, for example, you know, mm -hmm. that we, I don't know, to come back to that example about urban development, for example, you know, that councils obviously often try and create kind of kind of atmosphere, you know, in a town centre or in a particular kind of neighbourhood that they want to be like, you know, the quirky kind of independent shop neighbourhood or the kind of the nightlife neighbourhood mm. or however that's kind of framed. So the ways in which kind of you know, the, the, there's kind of governance, I guess, and the kind of politics of emotion around different kinds of um, spaces that, that we're being kind of led to feel in particular ways, I suppose, in those places, um, whether that's kind of positive or negative. Um, so, yeah, and I think it's those are sort of, you know, some of the ways in which this kind of comes through. But I think it's it's a very kind of developing and kind of flourishing field, I think. And so there's kind of more and more interesting stuff looking at kind of more and more complex kind of emotions, looking mm. at all sorts of the different ways in which that stuff is invoked and, you know, the relationship between kind of the personal, but also the kind of sort of political, the structural um, and the kind of different scales at which that works as well. One of the questions that we ask quite a lot is, you know, whether people have a, <laughs> we call it a happy place, you know, <laughs> somebody that you, somewhere you go, you identify with that, you know, is associated with, um, positive emotions. And what you're saying is it's, that's yep. that's part of it, but it's actually much, much more complex than that. There's an awful lot of stuff happening, all sorts of different emotions in different places. Yeah, absolutely. And But I think, you know, if you sort of drill down into that idea of a kind of happy place, then I think you get quite a lot of the sorts of things that we're thinking about, because, you know, what is it that makes something a happy place for someone? You know, mm. it might be about kind of, you know, their memories and their kind of family histories, and that might open up all sorts of kind of interesting stories about family and kind of childhood or whatever but it might be um you know and it might even be things like kind of the smell of the place you know and mm. so then you are often you know, kind of touched into other kinds of sort of sensory kind of experiences um but also you know like i think that's it it's like you know it's, it might just be a contrast to places that sometimes feel unhappy you know it's not busy it's not noisy um, and all mm. of those kinds of things so i think you know y you can start to kind of to pull out some of the bigger themes even if you know and obviously you know often our 
our response to that kind of question about where our happy place is is quite instinctive. But actually, mm. you know, when I mean, I guess a lot of what we do as as academics and a lot of we, certainly with a focus on kind of the everyday is to take those things that seem kind of instinctive and ordinary and unthought through and actually think them through. Um, right. So yeah, you know, so I would be really kind of interested, to kind of like you know look at kind of all, you know where those kind of happy places come from and, and you know and what that means you know is and I guess particularly in the kind of sort of current environment you know a happy place is often one that isn't impinged by kind of you know bigger outside kind of structures or politics or mm. you know anxieties or whatever those might be so it's almost kind of so often finding a space that that is yeah that is kind of protected from some of the you know the bigger kind of stuff that we have to deal with in our everyday lives. I kind of have to ask you the obvious question here about do you, do you have any happy places, any particular places that you identify with as having sort of good memories or places that draw you? Um, you've talked about sort of moving around a lot as a as a um, as a child. I mean, has that sort of created spots around the UK or around the world? No, I mean, I think I, I mean, I think gardens, I think um, are really, you know, and I think particularly kind of walled gardens. And for some reason, mm. I, don't, I mean, I don't really have a kind of sense of why um, I suspect at some point, you know, there was a walled garden that I visited that was very important to me. But, mm. you know, and I, I can connect, you know, I have some understanding of why gardens in general are important to me. I associate them very closely with a family friend with whom we spent a lot of time when I was little. And mm. that sense of kind of being, I mean, I, you know, at the time, kind of, you know, being free and kind of playing in mud and all of that kind of sense. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but I, I have this kind of enormous sense of well-being in walled gardens and I can't really explain it. Um, why they have to be, you know, why, I mean, I like all gardens, but there's something about walled gardens that, that make me feel kind of very um, at home, I suppose. Mm. Um, but yeah, more generally, I think, I mean, I think the sort of, the moving around a lot, I think has translated into just a very strong sense that I like to be at home. And I don't necessarily mean in my house, um, mm. but I think I'm very attached to the place that I live, North Shields. Um, I mean, I've only been here about 10 years, mm. um, but, you know, an awful lot of what I've kind of done I suppose over the 10 years that I've been here is, has been to kind of build connections in it to kind of make sense of it to start to feel at home in it and obviously you know North Shields is a place where lots of people have been at home for generations so you know and in that sense I'm very much a kind of an incomer to North Shields and there's an awful lot about its history you know and the, the experience of, of, of this place that I don't you know that I, I kind of don't know about and have never experienced but yeah, the familiarity of kind of knowing where I am and being able to kind of wander around the streets and explore um, on my own, but also with my daughter and with friends. Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of, you know, that, that gives me a really kind of strong sense of well-being. You mentioned that, you did you say your daughter was about 10? Yeah. Yeah, so, so she's basically lived in um, North Tyneside all, all her life, is that right? Or yeah, that's right. She, we moved yeah. here, in fact, when I was pregnant, yeah. Right, okay. But does she identify as a... As a Geordie, as a translator. <laughs> it's funny, actually, like, no, she, the way she kind of, you know, uh, she's very, I think she's also very attached to North Shields. I think she kind of can't imagine, and the coast, and I think she can't mm. really imagine kind of, you know, not living here. Um, although now I think, you know, it's that thing, since I guess at the age of 10, you start to begin to imagine kind of more independence. So now she's sort of talking a bit more about the other places that she might go or live or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't think she identifies as a Geordie, and I think that's got, and I think partly it's, I mean, neither me nor her dad, a Geordies and mm. um, you know most of the kind of again just you know the way this some of this stuff happens I suppose um, in complicated ways but most of the children that she's kind of good friends with their parents aren't Geordies either yeah um, so it's kind of yeah so I don't think she does identify as a Geordie but it'll be interesting to see as like as she grows up mm. how important this this kind of mean is to her and you know when if and when she leaves home or goes to university or moves away for work or whatever, you know, how important, you know, North Shields and the North East kind of are to her. Yeah. Sort of identifying with it more after you've sort of moved on to somewhere else, potentially. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, like, by the time I was 10, I'd lived in, I don't know, five or six different places at least. Oh, right. And, gosh. Um, and I, yeah, bizarrely went to boarding school. Um, so, you know, I wasn't even kind of in most of those places very much either. Mm. So, and, and then that was a very kind of conscious decision for me that, you know, I really wanted her to be in one place. Um, and, you know, if she chooses to leave it, that's up to her. But, you know. Mm -hmm. Something you mentioned earlier, um, and it's interesting now we're talking about sort of children, how children think about space, is um, the work that you do around um, play in, in neighbourhoods. Um, the other thing that I noticed about the page which details your research is you talk about sort of 
this your the scale at which you work is sort of getting smaller and smaller. Um, I, I guess is that sort of from a sort of national down to a neighbourhood scale? Do we mean or? Well, yeah, I think I mean partly that, but also I mean I I did my started my academic career. I did my PhD in in Western Siberia in um, Ooh, wow. in in the Russian Federation, um, and then and I so I worked there for a few years, and then I worked in Poland for about ten or fifteen years. Right. Um, and I mean, now I quite literally work on my doorstep. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of come closer to home, I suppose. Maybe that's kind of the way of, of putting it, which is an interesting trajectory and certainly one that I have reflected on. Yeah. So, so tell us a bit about how um, somebody in your position as, as an academic, as a teacher, um, gets involved in play. It's, it's called Play Meet Street, isn't it? Play yeah. Meet Street North Townside. Um, tell, well, tell us a little bit about what that is. Um, and then how did you come to be involved in it? So um, Playmate Street is, we're a voluntary community group that um, in based in North Tyneside and we support, um, promote and develop Play Streets across the borough. And in this context, Play Streets have kind of meant different things through history. But in this context, a Play Street is a temporary, regular road closure, um, creating space for, particularly for children to play. But also we were quite keen um, to stress that it was also an opportunity for adults to meet, which is why mm-hmm. we're Playmate Street. Um, so it's usually three hours-ish a month, sometimes a bit more regularly, sometimes less regularly, but more or less three three hours a month. When we 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 apply um, on the street's behalf to the to North Tyneside Council, mm-hmm. we get uh, legal closure notices, which we post up on lampposts, um, and we close the street. So that tends to literally be uh, wheelie bins with road close signs tied onto mm-hmm. them, um, and then. That we just we basically create a space for play. I mean, we create a, we don't do anything particularly after that. Mm. Um, I mean, it varies kind of you know on some streets people kind of organise more active games and um, crafts or you know activities or whatever. But largely, what we do is we just create that space and l- leave it open for children and adults to just hang out and play and do what they want. Um, so we support um, about 50 streets across North Tyneside now. Um, right, wow. But kind of, yeah, to sort of go back, I guess. So I, I run Playmate Street with an, another couple of people um, and we set it up in uh, 2017 um, off the back of an existing project that had been set up by another group in North Tyneside in 2015. Mm. Um, so they had a kind of two-year pilot project funded by Play England, as it happened at the time. And um, I started playing out on my street then. So I I kind of like, I'd heard about playing out. I don't really know how. But again, you know, this links back to this kind of idea that it's very, you know, kind of that I like to kind of build roots and connections to kind of the places on my doorsteps. And, hmm. you know, we moved here. My daughter, I guess, in 2015 was four. Um, I knew, I'd met a few of my neighbours, um, but not you know, really well. And there were quite a few kind of other parents with kids on the street. And I think I just, so I just sort of, I must have somehow heard of the idea of kind of play streets or playing out. And I Googled it and Mm. found out that there was a pilot in North Tyneside. And I mean, it's, yeah, strange that there was because there weren't pilots in many places. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got in touch um, and started playing out on our street in December 2015. So almost six years ago now. and I did that, you know, with friends and neighbours for a couple of years until the organisation that had been doing all the work up till that point said, you know, they couldn't carry on, their funding had run out, their priorities right. were elsewhere, mm-hmm. and they kind of wanted someone to take it on. So, um, right. so with two other women who also closed their streets, also part of that kind of early pilot, we took it on in 2017. Well, we so it wasn't it had kind of no obvious name before we took it on, um, mm-hmm. but we create so we created Playmeet Street. We set ourselves up as a constituted voluntary group, and uh, and we've been doing it ever since. That sounds excellent. So, um, just for people that haven't experienced that kind of play street, that that closure for three hours, um, what typically kind of happens? You, know, you say you you don't you don't sort of build the activities for people, but it tends to be things that the community themselves run. But just what sort of things go on? What what happens? What's it I mean, like? What does it feel like? We, you know, we, we, we sort of literally have to put kind of the, the barriers in the road. That's kind of obviously mm. one of the most important things. And, you know, and often, you know, we'll do that, you know, 
as families are starting to kind of come out. So there's mm. a point at which we always kind of say, okay, kids, you know, the road's closed. Yeah. Although, as we like to say, the road's actually open. Open. <laughs> um, um, and the kids just run out. And they run out, they scoot out. Um, I, I, there's, a lot, there's always a lot of chalk involved. Um, and I, <laughs> I really like chalking on our street. Um, I mean, literally kind of on in the middle of the road. So um, weirdly, actually, it's kind of interesting for sort of talking about happiness. I always draw a smiley sun. That's kind oh. of like... And yeah, my daughter and her friends and the other kids on the street just sort of roll their eyes at me now. Oh God, <laughs> is Alison going to do her smiley sun again? Um, and it actually made it onto the Play Meet Street logo, which I was pleased to see. Ah, but, okay. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, and it, it, you know, it varies a lot on our street, um, depending on, you know, who's out, which kids are out at different ages, which adults are out. Um, but yeah, I mean, largely the kids kind of make their own fun. You know, they'll... Mm. Some of them will have bikes and scooters, you know, there'll be quite a lot of chalking. If it's the summer, we might have water out and water pistols. Um, it just sort of, you know, it really depends on what kind of people, you know, what, what families, what children bring to it and what kids are in the mood for. And obviously then, you know, they'll also kind of play off each other, kind of, you know, they'll respond to kind of, you know, play cues and they'll kind of, you know, so it's like last time we played out. It's quite interesting because sometimes it can be quite quiet. You know, there won't be necessarily many children out. Um, mm. It really varies on our street. There can be kind of anything from sort of like eight to ten up to kind of twenty or twenty-five, and it, you know, and some come from neighbouring streets, like the kind of literally kind of adjoining streets. But it's a very kind of local thing. Mm. Um, and like, so the last time we were playing out, um, it was really quite quiet, and there weren't many kids out. But for some reason, my daughter and one of our neighbours who are the same age, they don't go to the same school, but they've known each other a while now. They decided they wanted to do, as an alarm just going off. Um, That's all right. We'll, we'll go with that. That's the, the alarm is better than the pneumatic drill or whatever it was <laughs> in the background last time we spoke. <laughs> yeah, so they, so they, yeah, my daughter and her friend decided that they wanted to, to rope everyone into a talent show, but it wasn't going to be competitive. There were no, going to, no, no winners or losers. And bizarrely, they got everyone children and adults on board so they had a list of all of the talents that my talent was drawing smiley sons you know. <laughs> of course <laughs> um and you know they marked out seats for us on the pavement they got tickets for us um and they you know they were they were approaching kind of other people like other neighbors on the street who weren't out to play who were just kind mm -hmm. of coming and going and like trying to get and then and then when we did it and they made us sit down and give us our tickets and and it was just amazing because the kids were just brilliant they were doing all sorts yeah. of i mean hula hooping and um i think my daughter was doing a mime but then one of one of the one of the other mums did a magic trick and it was just it was just hilarious i mean it wasn't the best magic but it, it was and it, and it was just this kind of like so what had felt like quite a kind of kind of quiet kind of subdued play street at the start just had this i mean quite literally kind of magical moment at the end and mm. but it, they're almost always like that you know even if it feels like it's a bit of a kind of chore to get the signs out that i don't know how many people are going to be around you know mm you know something kind of magical happens and you know and it can be quite an ordinary and mundane little thing it's not necessarily you know something that you can always kind of tell a story about but yeah you know when when particularly kind of children are given the space to play they play and they do so in all sorts of kind of inventive and creative ways and yeah you know sometimes the kids will all i mean if there's a smaller number of kids often the kids will all play together if there's more kids then they'll separate but often not along kind of age lines you know so sure. you get a lot of mixing between kind of ages which you don't you know often get in many other kind of you know the kids don't really do that at school a huge amount yeah. and you know so we've got tiny we've got kids who you know learn to crawl literally on the street um <laughs> and then yeah you know, and it kind of goes up probably to about 11 12 year olds when they start to, to be a bit kind of too cool for kind of the street sure. but yeah. still you know yeah. we'll hang out often and you know um, chill with each other kind of you know in a sort of and that sort of literally kind of that transition between kind of childhood and adulthood mm. um but yeah you know it, it always by the end of it it always feels like something kind of magical happened um something just unexpected something you know extraordinarily fun something that the kids enjoyed something that the adults enjoyed um and yeah so that's what it feels like so what, what what's what what do you hear coming back from people that have been involved how does it make a difference to people's communities and streets in the yeah. Long term. So I suppose that yeah, kind of like because I, I mean I do this as an activist, so I kind of visit lots of streets who are playing out. Um, but I'm also mm. researching this stuff, so I've kind of done I guess wider and kind of more slightly more systematic 
research around this. But I mean, I, you know, I often kind of go around and, and visit the, some of our streets when they play out. So we usually have about 10 kind of playing out most weekends and we have the first Sunday of the month is particularly popular. So we often have kind of 15 or so streets playing that day and I'll quite often just drive around and it's just this most amazing thing. Cause like I, I actually these days I do it on my bike. So I kind mm. of cycle around the corner and you know, suddenly there's all these kids playing and I, <laughs> the last time I did it would have, would have been the beginning of um, October and it was a really wet afternoon and I set out at about two o'clock and it just started raining and I was thinking oh well, well I mean not least kind of I was getting to get soaking as I as I cycled but you know it's like no one will be out but like I kept turning the corner and there were kids playing in the rain and parents just standing around with cups of tea and cups of coffee Um I went to one street and you know kids were literally jumping in puddles um, <laughs> Nothing so better I, than jumping in puddles. Well, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and the kids never mind it raining when it comes back to the question about kind of the weather at the start. But yeah, yeah you know, so, I mean, and so, it, you know, it animates streets, I suppose, in, in a really kind of obvious kind of invisible way. Um, you know, you, there's colour on streets, you know, there's chalking on streets, there's toys lying around, there's bikes lying around. Um, so, it, you know, it animates streets in that kind of in the moment, as it were. But yeah, you know, people get to know their neighbours and loads of people come to us with stories about how, you know, there were neighbours, older neighbours as well, not just people with children on their street who they, who've lived there for 30 years and have never really met any of their other neighbours. Obviously, you know, during the pandemic, particularly kind of during the lockdowns, um, those streets that played out often had, you know, they, they knew each other, but mm. they often also had WhatsApp or Facebook groups for the street. So they immediately kind of switched to you know, using those to kind of support vulnerable neighbours or to check in on people or, or, you know, just to kind of keep in touch with each other, you know, mm. especially when we were, you know, spending so much time on our streets. Um, so these are the sorts of things that, that people talk about. You know, most people talk about the fact that their street feels safer, that they feel like they belong on the street more, um, that they, yeah, that they feel at home and that they, f they know more of their neighbours and they have kind of richer and kind of more kind of sort of multi-stranded connections, I suppose, with their neighbours. Mm. Um yeah. You, yeah. You sort of preempted my, my next question um, a, a little bit earlier when we, you were talking about the pandemic. And I just wonder whether you'd noticed any changes, any differences now in how people think about their own kind of immediate neighborhood and their own street as a result of lockdown, of restrictions, of kind of changing practices, uh, changing patterns of behavior. Yeah, I think, it, it, again, you know, I've thought about this both as a kind of an activist and a, as a researcher. And I think, you know, um, I think a lot of people obviously talk about particularly that first lockdown of, you know, when the streets were so quiet mm. and you could, you know, you could occupy your street in a way that, you know, I mean, people were scooting, cycling, running down the middle of their street because, you know, we were trying to give space and there wasn't much traffic and all of that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, a lot of people kind of thought again then. And that coincided obviously with the fact that, that um, you know, we were all on our streets. We were all in our homes, not all of us, obviously, but those of us that were predominantly working at home or homeschooling. So we saw our neighbours a lot more, um, you know, I just kind of remember, like, we've got a sunny side of the street and a kind of shady side of the street. <laughs> and on the sunny side of the street, like, you know, all my neighbours were kind of, you know, sitting out front, you know, like for big parts of the day. So there was yeah. this, and you could, like, from where I'm sitting, I can kind of, you know, working, I can kind of see that going on and these kind of connections that are made kind of, you know, on people's kind of, in from people's front gardens and front yards, like on the pavement and stuff. And then you, we saw, you know, nationally in all sorts of different parts of the country this sort of emergence of you know there are lots of chalking and hopscotches for example but also rainbow trails and all sorts of other things that you know that these kind of playful ways that people were trying to kind of like connect to each other I suppose mm. and kind of stay connected even when we were kind of in our homes um so I think you know I think and I think there was a moment then when everyone was thinking oh well you know this is the whole kind of build back better thing you know this is something we have to keep hold of and of course it was never like that again not even in the later lockdowns um mm. and i think you know there's a real kind of fight to try and keep hold of some of that stuff um and it's not easy you know there were a very particular set of circumstances that arose then and you know and, and not everyone could kind of participate in that because there were clearly people who were going to work there were people who you know were juggling work and you know schooling two or three kids and you know in often cramped conditions and stuff mm. and you know and then and there was clearly kind of a lot arising then also about you know what happens to those children particularly that don't have access to outdoor space you know when we were not supposed to be kind of leaving our homes very much when you know I mean when they shut playgrounds you know they closed off taped off playgrounds across the country you know what happens to kind of kids in those kinds of circumstances when when they don't have gardens or, or whatever and I suppose that's where the street kind of really comes into it into the fore um you know like if you can just 
if, if your street is safe enough to play in and to connect in, then you can do that then. You can do it safely and because there are no cars, but also because, you know, you're just outside your house and you're outdoors and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I think in lots of places, I think there was a sort of reckoning, kind of re-reckoning, if you can say that, yeah. um, <laughs> around, you know, what streets are for and, and you know, how much we want to, to kind of connect to our neighbours. And I think some of that has been maintained. I think there are some people who are still trying to kind of hold on to that and think about the ways that we can kind of maintain that and develop it in a, in a kind of equitable kind of manner. Um, so, yes. Yeah, that, that word equitable is interesting because um, I guess there's, there's a lot of competition for space and use of space that isn't necessarily compatible with each other. I'm thinking yeah. quite a lot. I mean, you talked about cars and, uh, and playing don't often don't merge well. Um, no. So when, when you're... When you're negotiating, I guess, for um, for these these play streets for these events, do you find that there's that you have to put in a bit of work to sort of explain kind of what what it is, why it's important? Yeah, for sure. And I think you know. So w- what happens is that you know residents from a particular street will come to us and say they want to kind of organise a play street on their street. And I mean, the mm-hmm. first thing we'll do is to just check with them that they've at least got kind of a couple of other neighbours on board at the start. Yeah. Um, so that they've kind of got people to kind of work with and because, you know, it, it does require a bit of effort. And then we support those neighbours to to consult with all of their neighbours. So and we give them kind of leaflets that explain like kind of, you know, what happens on a play street, but also, as you say, why it's important um, and why, you know, it's important that children can play on their streets and not just in neighbouring parks or mm. on the beach or whatever. Um you know, and that it is about community and belonging and attachment and, um, you know, and the fact often that, you know, anyone that's kind of under, I don't know, 45 or 50 probably played on their streets. Um, yep. And, you know, and interestingly, it's often kind of older people who do have concerns um, and, you know, you kind of say to them, well, you know, surely you played out on your street when you were younger and, um, and you know, their concerns often kind of legitimate because they're not sure about the noise or they're not mm. sure about and often damaged cars or to kind of other property. So we have, you know, it's often the same concerns that are raised. Um, so, you know, we have kind of responses to that. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose ultimately we come back to this question of sort of, yeah, if you like kind of whether or not this is equitable. And my response is quite often, you know, cars dominate our streets every mm. other hour of the day every other hour of the week and every other hour of the month we're just asking for three hours once mm-hmm. a month and there's not a lot you can say to that <laughs> no no i don't think there is i mean you, you paint a really appealing picture uh of of what happens in these play streets and you know what they can do for the community and i just wonder if there's somebody in north Tyneside at the moment that's thinking oh that sounds like a really good idea we'd love to do that what should they do how should they get in they touch with you get how in should touch they... with us um yeah. so we have um a Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram profile, but I'm not very good on Instagram, so I don't do that. <laughs> um, and we have um, we have a web page, and so if anyone, if you just Google Play Meet Street North Tyneside, you'll find one way of contacting us for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I mean, there is it, you can you can run Play Streets in Newcastle as well. It's it, the council kind of sort of leads on the scheme there, and it's not as well developed mm-hmm. and, or as well supported as the scheme we have in North Tyneside and lots of other places around the country, including elsewhere in the north i'm trying to think if there's any other kind of northeastern i mean there's other places so i know that kind of northumberland and durham for example have explored the possibility of doing this um but i don't think yet they have mm-hmm. um so but yeah certainly so if you're in north Tyneside, then then get in touch with us um if you're in newcastle then have a look on the city council website um but you're also welcome to get in touch with us and we'll point you in the direction of what you need to know and i guess if if there's nothing sort of immediately obvious for for people in their particular part of the northeast, then one of the best things they can do is say to the council that they're interested. This is something they want to do. Um, sort of demonstrate that there's a, a demand for it. Absolutely, and there's a national organisation called Playing Out who are based in Bristol, and they provide support, you know, nationally um, to to residents, but also to local authorities. So, you know, if local authorities are interested, if people working in, you know, sports or kind of physical activity or public health you know in councils are thinking you know what well, we could do this and how could we do it then playing out are great and they're, they're really good at kind of helping council set up schemes but also supporting residents to kind of push their councils to do so i mm-hmm. mean in north Tyneside, um i mean we have a kind of sort of you know 
sort of system of application. But ultimately, we use street policy legislation and every council can use that. Right. Um, it was introduced, I think, around the Jubilee so that um, oh, course, yes. residents could, could you know, apply to their council to close their streets, the street parties. Um, and that's ultimately what we use in, in North Tyneside. So most councils will have that stuff in place. So it may be that you can't yet organise kind of monthly or fortnightly play streets, but you could start with a street party and see mm-hmm. how it goes. Yeah. And then go back to the council and say, look, you know, we actually want to do this more regularly. Um, actually, there's a, Playing Out have a good blog on their website, which looks at kind of street parties versus play streets and street parties tend to be kind of more of an event you mm. know it's kind of like you know people cook and prepare for stuff whereas most of our play streets you know literally we put the signs out and that's all we do sometimes yeah. we offer bits of food and stuff actually we've got quite a lot of streets playing out on halloween so that'll <laughs> be a bit more kind of going on in most instances there's probably a way that you could try something out and then kind of yeah see what happens and follow up well, that sounds excellent. Thank you, Alison. Um, just as, as we sort of head towards the end of the um, end of the conversation, I just kind of wondered, you know, aside from what you've been talking about with Playmeet Street and um, your interest in place and things that you've said that you do for happiness, but what, what would you say? Uh, what What do you do to keep keep happy to sort of maintain your um, sense of well being and contentment? That's not to do with the things you've already mentioned. Good, good, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it. Is, and I'm very, I think I'm very lucky to be in this position where I've kind of managed to kind of create a life that allows me to do the stuff that makes me happy. Mm. Um, you know, that like, I enjoy kind of getting at this stuff from all of these different angles, doing it kind of on the ground, but also thinking about it and engaging with other people who are thinking about it. I think, you know, some of the stuff that I talked about earlier, I think, you know, that, that relates to this, but it's kind of broad, that stuff about kind of noticing. I, you know, I, there's something about kind of being in an environment and noticing it and paying attention mm. to it. and. And, you know, so I think you know, I think back in January, I think when we were in lockdown again, I kind of did a sort of, I committed to going out on my, on foot or on my bike. And I think yeah. once I went on scooter um, <laughs> every day and, and I tweeted the whole kind of, you know, like every day I tweeted a couple of photos from kind of what I'd, I'd done. And, and that sent, you know, so some of it was about kind of seeing kind of, you know, beautiful weeds and some of it was about, you know, a little piece of kind of North Shields history. And mm. those, but so there's in different ways, there's kind of connection, noticing and kind of connecting and thinking about kind of what, what's around me and doing that, you know, either on my own or with friends and or with my daughter. And I think, yeah, so that sort of stuff, I mean, it's very related to kind of to what I do, but that's the sort of stuff that makes me happy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah interesting you mentioned scooters, but what's your, what's your verdict about uh, scooting as a, as a form of transport for, for grown-ups? <laughs> It really kills my leg. Like, <laughs> I just, I, I end up kind of like with one leg in this kind of slightly kind of, you know, I don't know, bent position. And yes. Yeah. And so there've been, you know, a few times when, um, what we are, one, of, one of the things my daughter likes to do is to go places that I don't know, which is really difficult because mm. I know this part of North Tyneside really well. Yeah. Um, and she she wanted to go, but she, there was one time, and then and then she was thinking about kind of a place that we'd been before, which happens to be kind of a very long, straight, um, and slightly downhill cycle path. Oh, um, cool. Uh, and she wanted to scoot down it, and I was on, my, and she insisted that I was on my scooter too. And like we probably we probably went about eight miles that day. That's like maybe, maybe not that much, maybe six, but quite a Even long way. Even so, that's, yeah, that's I was that's just exhausted. I'm like, my <laughs> leg was killing me, and she was perfectly happy. So yeah. But maybe I haven't tried an electric scooter yet, so maybe that would be the way to do it. I uh, well, in fact, when I dropped off the microphone at uh, the geography building um, a couple of days ago, I'd, I'd scooted from our office on one of the uh, one of the electric scooters in town. I, I haven't, yeah, I haven't tried them yet. I need, to, I haven't been in town really enough to do that. But yeah, I need to give that a go because they think that's it. You just don't have to do the keep keep having to kind of do the do the work with your leg. So I'm yes. that a lot easier. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a, it's sort of a nice mix of uh, you feel like you're out and you feel like you're doing a bit of exercise, but actually, it's not not that hard. Yeah, uh, and I think I mean often that's the thing with cycling. I think, and that's the sort of the joy of cycling is that you mm. know, I think you know you that you know when you're a child and you you, you realise how fast you can go, you know, and you yeah. just, you know the wind in your hair, and you I mean you might not even be going that fast, but you know you feel like you're kind of speeding, and it and it just feels fun and easy and I know often you know both with scooters and with cycling there's sometimes a slog up the other side <laughs> um but um but yeah that sort of sense of kind of freedom and of kind of movement you know like moving fast but not in a car I think it, mm. that, it is kind of extraordinary I think and and yeah I, I got a new bike I got two new bikes in the last year but I did I got a new kind of sort of ordinary bike in I think October and I just mm. remember taking it out on the first day and I felt like 
you know, I felt like a child. I felt like that, you know, that first time when I'd been out on my bike when I was, you know, got a new bike when I was little and that just kind of sense I remember of, that so well. That yeah, and it's yeah. just, you know, and I think there's something about, yeah, scooping and cycling that, that, that takes you back, you know, in, in really kind of, not in a nostalgic way, but in really kind of positive ways, you know. And I think, you know, we're, as adults, we're often very bad at being playful. And I think some things like that kind of allow us, you know, getting a scooter through Newcastle City Centre or whatever, it allows us to kind of hold on to that. What a wonderful place to stop. Um, Alison, thank you so much for giving me your time twice <laughs> to, to, to get to re- get this I'm recorded. Glad we sorted it out. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm really I'm really pleased we did. That was a that was a lovely conversation. I, I learned felt feel like I've learned an awful lot and um I hope there's there's a lot to inspire people uh, about thinking about their own neighborhoods and their own streets and, and what they can do to to kind of build that sense of community. So, um thank you very much for your time and I hope we speak again soon. Pleasure, thank you. So that was my conversation with Alison. Uh, what did we think? Can I go first with this one, Of course you can. Go, go Gath, do it. <laughs> I just thought you were having such a good time. <laughs> <laughs> was I nerding out? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> big, big time, big time. Apologies to the all the listeners. about halfway through. I thought, do you know what it is? He's just really enjoying yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> quite rightly so. Quite rightly so. Um, so it was. It was an amazing interview. But just, just quickly to get in, into the discussion, the phrase that struck out for me uh, was when she started to talk about playing out, mm-hmm. and I think Alison's interpretation of playing out was slightly different to mine. Um, because I come from a generation that only played out. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't we didn't play in, as it were, yeah. and it just triggered off so many different things in my head about uh, about play and neighbourhood and sociableness that I was enthralled all the way through mm. with her and. Finally, to start with, I think I know her as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure I've met you before. Yeah. So I, I'm almost certain I have met you before, Alison. So it's it's lovely to catch up again. So that's my starter for ten. Excellent, thanks, Kath. <laughs> How about you, Alex? There was there was so much in it, wasn't there? I kind of mm. you know, same as you, Kath, just hooked all the way through. Um, my eight-year-old is obsessed with geography. She's got um, an atlas, which she got from Father Christmas last year, which she just studies intently with such great depth. And I I remember, I think it was a few days ago, um, we were watching Pointless. And uh, I think, I, th- I hope I pronounced this right, a, a place called Burkina Faso came up yeah. as a Pointless answer. Um, and I was like, oh, I've never heard of that place. And she was like, oh, yes, it's uh, it's in Western Africa, mummy. You know, and I'm just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so she just has all of this knowledge. She just loves geography and finding out about places. So I can definitely see her pursuing, you know, geography when she's a little bit older. Definitely. Well, I um, approve. <laughs> but... Um, I was really interested in in what she was talking about quite early on in the interview, actually, about emotional geography. It was something Mm. that I hadn't really quite um, thought about, really. But once she kind of started talking about what that meant, I was like, oh, of course, yes. Um, And I think it's kind of connected to kind of sense of place and... Mm -hmm you know place-based storytelling which you know the three of us have all done before you know collecting oral histories digital stories whatever about you know um people's favorite places or what what places mean to people so i thought that emotional geography stuff was was fascinating mm. um and then again sort of towards the end of the interview uh when she was talking about equity and space sharing um and that cars dominate the outdoor space so much of the time that actually Mm -hmm. to give a street up for a few hours is nothing in the grand scheme of things but can mean so much um in in so many different ways so yeah i thought yeah loads of stuff there thanks chris and thanks alison yeah yeah, it, I, I I was nerding out, Kath. You're absolutely right. It was, it was completely not, not just from the geography point of view, but um, also just I think as you were saying that kind of playing out stuff. It was reminding me of 
um, when I was quite little, because I was sort of back in the seventies and early eighties um, in Edinburgh, and and we did we did play out a lot, um, but we weren't really allowed in the street. But there were kids that were allowed in the street to play football, and we called them the biggies. Um, <laughs> but they must have, they must only have been about nine or ten. But to 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 us, they were sort of enormous kids given this awesome responsibility being able to kick a ball around the street um but the fact is that you could back then without you know occasionally there'd be a car but um it just seemed something happened over uh, the intervening decades where um that that equity that balance shifted and you know mm-hmm. it, it does mm-hmm. it, it becomes normal very gently and slowly so that you don't really notice it yeah. happening until you sort of look up and go oh oh yeah where are the kids we're, we're really uh, fortunate in that Currently, we live on a cul-de-sac and we moved from the terraces of Heaton. Mm. And I remember when the, the first time when we kind of moved in and the girls asked, can we go and play outside? And we've got this big green, we're really lucky, we've got this lovely big mm. green space out the front. And I remember for the first couple of times they went outside, I was proper peeking through the blinds <laughs> just to make sure they were all right because I, I just wasn't used to it because we, you know, we lived on a very busy terraced street, um, which made it much harder to, to play out. So, yeah, things have definitely changed, um, haven't they, in terms of, yeah, the dynamics of the, the street and, and what kids can do now and compared to what we, we could do when we were growing up. Because I'm the same as you, mm. Chris, you know, we'd would go and play out the front and no bother, you know, parents would just leave you to it and you could roll a skate up and down or ride your bike up and down and it was great. Yeah. It's interesting talking about the happy place because I've had a, a lovely afternoon today talking to a brilliant um, 90-year-old lady who was telling me about her working life and she'd worked for a single employer for 30 years and it was obviously her happy place mm-hmm. in, in among the rest of her life, as it were. Um, but the look on her face, she just radiated contentment as she was talking. And it's not something you think about until somebody points it out to mm. you. Mm-hmm. So it, it, perhaps I, had, I was carrying Alison on my shoulder a little <laughs> bit when I met her, yes, <laughs> to talk about happy places. Mm. But, definitely amazing interview absolutely cool well thanks very much both of you and thank you again Alison yeah thank you um, if you've been inspired by this podcast episode then we would love to hear from you we love hearing stories and opinions on what happiness means to you um, so you can get in touch via email which is hello at the northern guide to happiness dot uk or you can find us on twitter at north happiness and instagram and facebook at northern happiness We're really glad to be spreading joy and happiness around the Northeast through this podcast, thanks to funding from the National Lottery Community Fund and the Newcastle COVID Fund. So thank you so much to our funders for their support. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you're enjoying listening to the Northern Guide to Happiness. Take care and see you again next week for another episode. Bye.